Turn with me in your Bibles to the New Testament, second and last book of the New Testament, the letter of Jude. Jude writes his letter to the church, and what church? All the churches at this time. It's one of the, what we label, general epistles. It is written to be circulated among all the churches in the first century, and of course to our day as well, as it is part of God's word. And really, there are several Judes in the New Testament, and it is short for Judas. Uh, so you'd want to be called Jude, probably, all, uh, more so. I don't know many people with all the biblical names out there. I haven't heard anyone name their children Judas as of late. And so he goes by Jude. And so Jude is most likely, this Jude is most likely, uh, the most evidence points to him being the half-brother of Jesus, as it refers to him as the brother of James. And you might wonder, well, why does he not just say that? Well, his highest level of relationship with Jesus is he is a servant of Jesus Christ. He wants to make sure that that is first and foremost in our minds. Now, the book of Jude, uh, do you know people who they don't say much, and you know it's not me, they don't say much, but when they do speak, what they say is deeply profound. They don't say a lot, but you just kind of wait for when they do speak, because when they do, it leaves a ringing effect that's the book of Jude. Just 25 verses. It'll take no more than six sermons to move through these verses. 25 verses, but they are profound, and they sound an alarm that is important for us today and in every generation to hear once more. Hear now God's word. I will read the first four verses. Where our focus will really look at verse 1 and verse 2, and we'll take up verse 3 and verse 4 next week. But for context, hear God's word. The first four verses of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, these are profound words in this short book. Lord, let them ring in our ears once more this morning. Lord, let us see the timeless nature of this warning that Jude gives us. I pray, God, that we would properly apply what it is teaching us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you, do you believe that doctrine is important? What would you say? In particular, do you believe that the gospel, as it relates to doctrine, the gospel, the doctrine of the good news of salvation, do you believe that it ought to be guarded with fervency? Further, do you believe that you are personally, as part of, the, part of the corporate church, that you're personally responsible to guard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Jude says that doctrine is important and that you, we, must guard it. Clearly, we can say the will of Jesus for the church is to be unified. In fact, in John 17, it talks about unity. We need to have unity. In fact, that's how people will know we are the church. We're unified. But it's never, ever at the expense 
of doctrinal impurity, particularly relating to the gospel of salvation in Christ. In fact, in Spurgeon's day, he dealt with a similar uh, phenomena that I am f confronted with. I regularly get calls to be part of these citywide different ecumenical movements. And uh, all sorts of churches will invite you to them. And I try to analyze ones that I should be part of. That is, we're brothers in, or brothers in Christ, and so there should be no reason for me not to be part of it. But there are many others that uh, they call themselves churches, but there are all manner of teaching going on in their, in their buildings. And it was encouraging to read what Spurgeon says, because I, I don't want to be unfriendly. At the same time, uh, unity at any cost is never a wise or biblical thing. Listen to what Spurgeon said in a local newspaper when he responded to all these pleas for his red, rather large church to join an ecumenical voice that was building in England. A chorus of ecumenical voices, Spurgeon writes, keeps harping the unity tune. They read only part of John 17 in declaring any disunity sinful. What they are saying is that Christians of all doctrinal shades and beliefs must come together in one visible organization. Regardless, unite, unite. Such te teaching is false, reckless, and dangerous, Spurgeon writes. Truth alone must determine our alignments. Truth comes before unity. Unity without truth is hazardous. Our Lord's Prayer in John 17 must be read in its full context. Look at verse 17, Spurgeon says. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy, tru thy word is truth. Only those sanctified through the word can be one in Christ. To teach otherwise is to betray the gospel. It is that important. And I'm not talking about every little possible theological debate we can get into. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the faith once delivered to the saints, which is the apostolic teaching about none other than Christ. The doctrine of Christ does, has no room for dispute or debate or giving in to one person's lesser view of Christ. The doctrine of Christ is the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. And it is interesting, as you look at the New Testament develop, you would think with such excitement in the book of Acts, when those churches were starting to be planted, thousands were coming to know the Lord. And churches were sprouting up. Elders were being ordained. And Paul was one of the greatest of all church planters. And shortly after he left Ephesus, which at its beginning was one of the stronger churches, it's the church that Timothy became the pastor of. Listen to what he says in warning to the elders at Ephesus as he's leaving. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Whoa, Paul, don't be such a downer. The church is going well. But his last words are, understand that I know after my departure, Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And notice it doesn't say that there will be outward oppression on the church that's going to come in. It says clearly, Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This is very profound. We, inter we think in terms of the world being against the church. Well, that's not the real enemy, is it? It's the fact that from within, by God's ordination, we'll look at this next week, there is the allowance of this kind of, this kind of effect to bring the purity of the doctrine to its 
highest possible form. It's the application of this kind of persecution that causes, moves the church, and has throughout history to define what the Bible says over and over again. And the beauty is the same definition of the gospel keeps coming. All these challenges affront, and they come from within. It's not someone out there telling us what the gospel is. I don't remember the last heresy that was brought in from off the street or, quite frankly, among the lay people. Usually it's from the seminaries or from some other institution that will teach something, and it creeps in and has its effect and then eventually leads sheep astray. Does anyone think this is different from what is happening today or has happened from the 19th century since Jude's time? If it happened that quickly, Paul wrote that somewhere in the area of 60, maybe 55 A.D., Not even 15 years later, listen to what Jude then says. After Paul makes this prediction of sorts, that after he leaves, wolves will come in. Jude now writing to all the churches that have already matured just a little bit. And he says in verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. They're there. 15 years is all it took for the slide. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. So we know that there's the hand of God still working here. But certain people have crept in unnoticed, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our own only master and Lord Jesus. So the faith once delivered, the doctrine that's being corrupted is surrounding our master and Lord Jesus. It's corrupting his grace. This is what should be so fervently defended. In fact, the crux of the whole book is to contend for the faith. The faith meaning the apostolic teaching about Jesus and what real grace is. Remember, we want peace. We want unity. But purity is what begets peace. Doctrinal purity begets peace. Now, a warning should go out at any time a group of Presbyterians are talking about doctrine. This does not mean judgmental criticism towards anyone who doesn't think the same as us. That is not defending the faith. That's being obnoxious at least and unchristian at worst. What it's talking about is wise discernment in order to be sure that the gospel message is kept pure so that sinners come to him. This is by God's ordination. Very important for us to keep that in mind as we look at what Jude is saying. We don't use this as a license to go find out how everyone's different than us, but rather, what do they say about Christ? What do they say about grace? What do they say about God and salvation? That is what is to be guarded with the utmost fervency, and in the time of the Reformation, even to the point of death. That's how important it is. We must strive after unity, but not at the expense of doctrinal impurity as it relates to our Master and Lord, Jesus. C.S. Lewis, who often people say he's not a theologian, but listen to what he says about theology and doctrinal study. He says theology and doctrinal study is practical, especially now. If you do not listen to theology, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ones, bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas. And I think he is so right in this, and we have to understand, because if you're one of those people uh, that is saying, I just don't understand how doctrine connects with my life. I don't see how it's practical. I, I don't understand how it helps with my wayward child, or I don't understand how it helps with my boss. I'm not sure how it relates to my uh, me and my spouse. Now, my first answer is look a little close, more closely because all those things are in fact addressed. But doctrine, by definition, it means teaching, a body of teaching on how to live. I mean, we study doctrine for the purpose of handling life skillfully according to God's plan. 
it is the best thing for your life to know God better. As you know your God, you'll be able to handle situations totally differently just from someone who doesn't understand God. So your view of God, your study of doctrine, your understanding of who our Lord is goes right into the heart of your very life. Whatever it is right now that's burdening you, and everyone probably has something, how does it, and ask yourself, how does it relate to your understanding of God? Your mind has to be renewed by the water of the word in accordance to what God has revealed about himself, and it makes all the difference in how we handle situations. So doctrine or teaching is not a bad word. It's our friend. It's what teaches. It's what helps us. It's our anchor when, when things start to happen, and they will happen. And look at the real point of the whole book of Jude. It's a verse we'll continue to come back to probably every week. Verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And we know by what he said earlier, or what he says in verse 4, that this faith that he's referring to is about our Master and Lord Jesus and his grace. Now, looking at these verses, especially the greeting, most greetings in the epistles really set out to give uh, the merit or the resume of the apostle who was writing. If you read Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, they all start with Paul saying, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus, a grace to you, the people of the church. And it kind of lets you in a little easy to the heavy stuff. Jude goes right after it. and says, listen, the, the way I'm going to even address you is going to give you what you need to contend for the faith, to be prepared for the battle that will occur. Look at verse 1 and verse 2 again and with new eyes. Verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, writing to who? Not just to the church, and that's a, that's a, a word that's good enough on its own. It means, ecclesia means called out ones, so that has a lot of uh, theological meaning. But look what he says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. What we have here are three important attributes, they're important uh, ways to describe us, the church, those of you who trust Christ as your Savior. You've been called, you've been loved, and you've been kept. And these appear in the aorist tense in Greek, which simply means it's a past tense with an action that continues on into the future. So it's something that's settled by God, and then it continues. Its effect continues. So you were called, and that is a has a remaining effect on you. You were loved, but you're still loved. You're kept, and you will be kept. It's part of the activity of God. And he starts, Jude starts, with this important foundation. And I would say to you, it's probably the most important reality you will come to understand as a believer for your life. That is the action of God in your life. This simple verse helps us to read what we're going to read later about contending for the faith. And those who will oppose it, we have to start with preparation. And simply that, knowing that we are called, loved, and kept. Let's look at this more closely. What does it mean to be called? Well, there are two kinds of callings in the Bible, and they're very clear to see the difference between the two. One's a general calling. That's when a prophet or one of the writers gives an, a general call that is uh, seeking people to follow that call, uh, the free offer of the gospel, or think of many other ways in which people are called to repent, called to do this, called to do that. That's just a general way that a call goes forth. That's not what's here. What is here is called an effective call or an effectual call. That means when God calls, we answer. The other calls are the call of man. Maybe God prompts them to call forth for people to come. Uh, but there are calls that you have the option of saying yes or no to, at least humanly speaking. But the call of God, those who are called, 
This is a term that is totally different in its meaning. It means you have no option. You're called. Now, to give you an illustration, think in terms of when you call your children in to eat. They're out playing. Junior, come on in. It's time to come. That's a general call. Because I'd like to think Junior would come every time, but the fact is he delays or he doesn't come the first time or there's some act of his volition that delays the process and the call cannot be called effective. It's general. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but it's general. Now, an effective call comes from God. I can't even give you an illustration of that because there's no human way, I guess, apart from me, instead of calling, going out and grabbing and bringing in. That's an effective call. Dragging is a way that word is used, kaleo, in other places in the New Testament. Dragging one in. That's the difference between a general and effectual call. Here, it's the effectual call. You've been effectually called by God, is what it says. That's your first point of preparation, so that whatever trial comes your way, personally or corporately, understand your divine calling, that you've been placed in this, in, in, into this body by God's decree. Romans 1.7 says, in, in, in Paul's address to the Romans, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father. 1 Corinthians, in his address to the Corinthians, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. There are literally dozens of examples in the Old and New Testament of effectual calling. That is what is being referred to here. It's quite apart from yourself. Look at the second aspect of our preparation for the contest or the defending of the faith. You're called, but you're also beloved in God the Father. And literally, it's best translated, well-loved, well-taken care of, affection that is poured out for you by God. Now, some versions have sanctified. This is, this is a mistranslation. The word is literally well-loved. You have been well loved. So you've been called and taken unto the Father, and now He's hugging you and He's just squeezing you. He's loving you. Well loved by the Father. We are called and cherished by God as His children. He wraps His figurative arms around us. And just think if God has His arms wrapped around us, what is the possibility of, possibility of anyone or any legion of angels prying apart His hands to drop you? God certainly would not be God if that were possible. Whoever was able to pry his arms away from you, that would be God. You have been loved. Zephaniah in the Old Testament, the grace of God shows forth as vividly there. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So it's this picture of the mighty one coming in and saving you and grabbing you and then exalting over you that you're his. He'll quiet you with his love. You've been called. You've been loved. What can separate us from the love of God? Can any thing in death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, powers, height or depth, nothing in all creation, we are told, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You've been called, you've been loved, and that just makes the next point obvious. You have been kept. You will be kept. What is meant by being kept for Christ? God's arms are around you, and you can, can you imagine someone trying to pull it apart? No. So by nature of his love, he has chosen to put it upon you, and he will not let you go. No matter what comes into your life, 
punishment or with trial, even in times when you, you thumb your nose at God, he does not let go of you. He holds on to you, his child. And just the knowledge of that is what promotes obedience in our lives. But you know, there's something else here. If you look at that part of verse 1 closely, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, what does this mean? We're bought with a price by Christ. What does this mean to be kept for Jesus Christ? I believe this is just another part of that bigger picture of redemption that evolves in the New Testament. This picture that God reveals to us progressively. And it is this simple. It is this simple. God the Father, based on Ephesians 1 and 2, chooses to save some. How does he save them? How does he make us sinners presentable before him? He gives us to the Son to redeem, because only the Son can do it. So the Son receives the sheep, John 10, from his Father. He receives them. Then he doesn't lose any of them, and he lays his life down for them. So his obedience in life is an obedience in death. His death on the cross, his resurrection, satisfies God. He has now cleaned us up, and now he presents us back to the Father. What is being said here is that in the final day, there is this picture of him then, God preserving and holding us, presenting us back to his son on the day that he appears. What a picture. So your security is not based on your belief. It's not based on your ability to hold on. It's based on nothing less than God's love for his son to whom you are united. Do you think that God will go back on his son? He won't go back on you then. That's the beauty of being kept. One way to illustrate this as vivid to me is that every Sunday for 15 minutes I'm allowed a wrestling match with my three sons. Now granted, that seems a little, I mean, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, one-year-old, you're real tough, Tony, you're probably thinking. But really, I just lay there and they pound, jump on me. They get on the couch and they jump on me and I throw one onto the other couch. I'm nice to Jordan, he's still too little to throw very far. And so they come and jump on me and they try to pry each other off and Two of them will grab me, and they're getting to the point where I can sense that this is going to be trouble in a few years. I'll stop that soon enough. But right now, I still can dominate them. I'm really tough. And so they grab me, and, and you know, it's fun. We'd love to just to hug one another and wrestle. And at some point, I grab one of them, usually one of the older two, and I hold them so they cannot get out, kind of let them know who's boss. But also to let them know I love them. I just hold them, and, they, and I talk to them, and they're trying to wiggle and get out. And there's only two ways they can get out. One way is they can say, Daddy's cool, and then I'll let them out. The other way is it's time for nap, and Sherry will come over to lead them up to take their nap. And at that time, I'll release them to her. In my, in my arms, they can't move. They know it. They're too little. But I release them to give to her so that she can take them, take their nap. God the Father right now is holding you who trust in his son. He's holding you tight. You cannot get out. Even if you try to wriggle out, you can't get out. He's sovereign. And at the appropriate time, He's going to give you to his son. And that time's going to be when Jesus reappears, when he comes for the final time, and all his people will be presented faultless and without blame before him. Because God has called you, he has loved you, and he is keeping you and will keep you. 2 Timothy 4, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. So what Jude is about to say is going to cause some anxiety for sure for those in the church who are wondering, who are these people who have, crept, have creeped in and are teaching this false doctrine, saying, it's true, this is going to happen, it's by design, but know that you're called, 
that you're loved, that you're kept, and in fact, the very design will be to show forth your calling in my loving you, in my keeping you. Really what we have here in the book of Jude, if you will excuse the expression, is a grace sandwich. Verse 1 is grace, called, beloved, kept. Then if you look at verse 24, that's the top slice, verse 24 and verse 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So I will do the calling, the loving, and the keeping, and I will present you blameless. These are the two slices of bread, and in between is the trial you're going to face. In this tri- the trial that you will face will make all the clear these two slices of bread, this grace that's on either side of it. He's preparing us for this contest or this defense of the faith that will be ongoing throughout the ages and it has ever been going since the first century even. And then there's a prayer for us. And look at the components of this prayer. It's what we need for the defense. Look at verse 2. Jude says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied in you. And these are profound words because we could have the tendency to be judgmental or critical if we're looking out for error and wondering who it's going to be. But he's saying, I want to pray for you that you would have, you would grow in mercy, that you would grow in peace, that you would grow in love. For if you grow in mercy, peace, and love, then you will have such a stature that you'll be able to properly, properly address error that arises. You won't go on a witch hunt. You won't constantly be looking to be some kind of doctrine, doctrinal tyrant. But rather, you will grow in these aspects so when they come up, The suppression of those things will be easier in the midst of you as you grow in mercy, you grow in peace, and you grow in love. First of all, growing in mercy. Mercy just has to do with knowing that we are forgiven. We've been shown great mercy, and it affects how we treat each other. Someone who's not merciful clearly shows that they don't understand what they've been forgiven. Really, that's what it comes down to. We we really think that there's somehow we should exert our harshness, harsh judgment on someone as if They deserve our wrath, and you don't deserve God's wrath. Mercy will show itself in the way we help each other, the way we have mercy for another person's situation. We burden their pain, whatever it is. We help one another. Grow in mercy. If you have that attitude in the church, as if error, when it arises, there's a sense in which there's a safeguard among the brethren because there's such a love that has grown that it can be identified. So if mercy has grown in us, then we will have the ability to maintain doctrinal purity based on the way we interrelate. And it goes to verse the next part as well. We grow in peace. Peace comes from this mercy ministry between one another and to the world. Then we grow in peace, peace with God personally, that is, we understand what we've been forgiven and peace with him, and peace then with each other in the community. That, again, I've mentioned before, that's the point of the passing of the peace in our liturgy. The whole first part of the service is, uh, per- is purposely heavy. That is, we are confronted with our sin. We're confronted with Almighty God. Then we hear the assurance of pardon. And now we're at peace with God. We're at peace with each other. And we can offer each other our hand of fellowship. That's the growing in peace that he's praying for the church. Mercy and peace. Grow in love. And the word love here is phileo. It's not the agape word. Phileo is that brotherly love or brotherly communion. So let mercy grow in you. Let peace grow in you. And let the love for the brethren grow in you too. Let that start growing because those things will help to safeguard or at least handle when contention arises, when we need to defend. Mercy, peace, and love. Jude begins his letter by praying these things for the church. And you know, these things, mercy, peace, and love, 
they happen in the context of the church's life. And the church's life has to be balanced, brothers and sisters. It's part the study of doctrine and part the study of application of that doctrine, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. We know what's right and then how to live. What happens, what happens often, is all we concentrate on is on what is right. We don't practice how, we don't live out how it's supposed to be practiced. That is dangerous because truth without love is ugly, says Francis Schaeffer, and he's right. But when we seek to live it out and practice it, now we have the balance that is needed in the church that gives us unity, that protects us from error, and that grows that community and its witness for the Lord. People, maybe it's personality, I don't know. But you have to decide where you are in that ledger. Some of us weigh more heavily on concentrating on the details. Uh, that, that's what we do, you know. Some of us say, oh, I don't want to deal with all that. I just want to live. Well, how are you going to live if you don't know this? And if all you're doing is knowing this, this body of doctrine, and just getting a, a fatter and fatter head, how are you going to walk with that head? It's a good question for all of us. I don't know where you're at on the spectrum, but it all goes to maintaining doctrinal purity, the study of it and the living of it. Jude prays that we would grow in mercy, peace, and love because <clears throat> Jude knows what's coming. He knows what's already there. Now we'll look at verse 3 and verse 4 more fully next week, but let's look at it now just for a moment so that we see what it is that they're defending and why. We have this greeting that tells them they're called, they're loved, they're kept. Mercy should grow in them. Peace should grow in them. Love should grow in them. That will help them. Why? Because there's a battle. There's a, de a defending that will have to happen, a contention that will have to take place. Verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There's a lot in verse 3, and it is the key verse of the book of Jude. Uh, contend for the faith would be a name I would give to the entire study of Jude. He says, I was starting to write to you about something else. I wanted to talk to you about something a little more lighthearted. It wasn't going to be as heavy. It's going to be something we could just rejoice in, that we're our common salvation, which means for all the differences about us, we are saved by the same Lord. You know, something that's developed in the last year and a half, if you've been paying attention to this Kansas City Alliance of Reformed Churches, is it's no little thing to have six churches come together from five different denominations and really share a brotherhood and a unity of uh, this goal, the, the gospel of Christ. It's really an effort to see what's being spoken here, that the faith once delivered to the saints concerns, concerns the doctrine of Christ and his grace. And we can stand unified in that. We will always have some difference here or there because we're sinners who are interpreting the Bible. But there's a unity that God is remarkably uh, active in maintaining about the person of Christ and his saving. And I would even go so far as to say he maintains it, even if we don't like exactly how it's packaged sometimes as Reformed people, but it's even maintained across evangelical lines. And wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if the church would show more unity in that respect? I'm not saying wash away all denominational distinctions, by no means. But as it relates to the faith once delivered to the saints, the master, our Master and Lord Jesus and the grace that we are saved by, how effective would we be for reaching the world if we were more unified in this endeavor? And I viewed this KC Ark Alliance as something that has really moved us in the right direction. And we hope to see that kind of thing develop in broader spheres, but it won't be based on anything that changes the doctrine of Christ and salvation. What we have here 
is a reminder about our common salvation. That's what he wanted to write about. But then he said, I found it necessary to go another step, to write appealing to you to contend for, that is, defend, struggle earnestly with, for the faith that was once. The faith, that is the thing uh, that which is believed. Uh, not faith that we exercise, but the faith, capital T, capital F, the faith, and that is the one that's delivered to the saints. And that is another way of saying one time for all time. It's been delivered, it's filled, it's finished, and it's been given. And with the death of the last apostle, no more of this has been expounded upon. The New Testament completes the revelation that we need that embodies what it is that Christ has done. That is, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's what we're defending. It's that important. Why? This is why. Verse 4. And to ignore this would be foolhardy. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Now, mind you, there are still apostles walking the earth in this day, and still, with the apostles roaming around, there are still those who crept in. Who thinks that's not going to still be the case today with no apostles walking around? For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Clearly, verse 3 and verse 4 demands a whole week on its own. But understand that what we are called to defend, we are prepared for by being loved, called, and kept, with God's mercy growing, his peace growing, his love growing, we are called to defend the faith, that is, the doctrine of our Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. It is worth struggling for. It is the power of God unto salvation. This is why. And it's by his design that we have this struggle. Because it, it hones the church with each age as it works to clarify what it is that the word is saying to us. Now, I'll just close with this. There's a sense in which we as a church engage in this struggle. But I want to challenge you personally. No one is exempt from this, even the smallest child. You're one of the people of God. This is men, women, children. This is not just pastors or people that are in council somewhere. This is all of us defending the faith. All of us. So it's important to be equipped to know and understand what it is that we believe about our Lord Jesus. I want to close with a quote from A.W. Tozer. He came, he, I started reading him in college, and there was a constant theme he kept referring to that really moved me uh, in my studies, and I want you to hear what he says in closing. Tozer says, and he writes in the 60s, We have gotten accustomed to the blurred puffs of gray fog that pass for doctrine in churches and expect nothing better. From some previously impeachable sources are now coming vague statements consisting of a milky admixture of scripture, science, and human sentiment. Trust me, that's happening in a major way today. Vague statements, he says, consisting of a milky admixture of scripture with a small s, science, and human sentiment that is true to none of its ingredients because each one works to cancel the others out. Little by little, Christians these days, again in the 60s, are being brainwashed. One evidence is that increasing numbers of them are becoming ashamed to be found unequivocally on the side of truth. They say that they believe, but their beliefs have been so diluted as to be impossible of clear definition. Moral power has always accompanied definite beliefs. Great saints have always been dogmatic. 
we need a return to a gentle dogmatism that smiles while it stands stubborn and firm on the word of God that lives and abides forever. And I would only add to Dr. Tozer this. We can stand firm because we are called, because we are loved, and because we are kept. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the security we have in Jesus Christ, that part of the very doctrine of our Master and Lord is that you keep us to present to him. Lord, we thank you. Our security is based on your decree, not on my whim. Lord, at the same time, we, are, we look at the, the task of defending, contending for the faith, and we know that we are imperfect. We're unable on our own to do this faithfully. God, remind us of your grace. Remind us that you will not let us go. And remind us that it is Jesus who builds his church. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to number 94, our hymn of response. We won't sing all six verses. We'll sing verses 1 through 5.